Kristen, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. It's it's a pleasure to have you here uh, for one of these salons. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, and, and so maybe you can just give a quick background um, of kind of your wine experience and, and kind of what you're doing currently, just for those who aren't familiar, uh, so they kind of uh, know what you're up to. Yeah. Um, so way back when I got my undergraduate degree in sustainable agriculture, gender studies, and creative writing. So of course I moved to San Francisco and started working in restaurants because yeah. what do you do with a degree like that? <laughs> um, so I cooked for a while and then somehow talked my way into a front of house, my first front of house role that I ever had in my life at the age of 21 at Saison when it was one Michelin star. Uh, we were awarded our second Michelin star in my in my time there. And it was there that I really got exposed to the world of wine. Um, I didn't, my parents don't really drink. I kind of thought wine was completely inaccessible. Um, but when I was living in San Francisco and working at Saison and also became very good friends with this young sommelier named Carlin Carr, who's now running all the programs at Frosca, uh, I was just surrounded by wine. And I kind of started putting the pieces together in my head that, you know, not all great wine was expensive. And that as a, as a 21 year old on a budget, like living in San Francisco on her own for the first time, like I could afford it and I could have access to it. And, you know, from there I moved back to the East coast where I'm from, did a pre-med post back at Harvard, was on the med school route for a minute and met this incredible woman who ran this wine bar, uh, right, right by the, my school. And she was the one that really pushed me to drop out of school and become a sommelier. And I was paying for school at the time by working on Nantucket on the summers. I was waitressing and I, I texted the owner. I still remember this very clearly texted him. And I was like, can I, can I be a sommelier this summer at the restaurant? And for those of you, uh, who, who may or may not know, Nantucket is like where the 1% vacations. It's an incredibly educated wine crowd. He was like, Kristen, I love you, but like, absolutely not. You can, you know, <laughs> you can unload all of our boxes of wine. Uh, we'll put, maybe we'll let you some a couple days towards the end of the season when, you know, our regular clientele is in there. And from then it was just hooked. I was by coastal for a while. I eventually became a sommelier at that restaurant. Um, and then in the winters, I would run programs in Palm Springs. I ran several hotels, a catering company in a hotel. Um, went to work for Sean Brock at Husk, then oh. moved back to Los Angeles where I'm currently at and was the sommelier at Austria Mozart for three years. And I'm currently still a wine director because I can't get away from anything <laughs> at this restaurant. He's in Hollywood. But at the time, I got introduced to my co-founder, Emma Toshak. A mutual friend set us up, and I only took the meeting because I had this chip on my shoulder at the time. I heard that she, you know, was a Harvard MBA, ex-Snapchat employee who wanted to start a wine company, and I was like, ugh, like, I'm so sick of this. I guess I'll take the meeting just so I can see what it's about. And so Emma tells me she's been pouring nice wine into Pellegrino cans to drink by the pool and on long Uber rides in L.A., and this was at the time when canned wine wasn't really a thing. Like there are some really amazing wine producers putting their wine in a can right now. Like I'm a huge fan of Scribe and Sands and Season Skins. I think people are doing some amazing things. But at the time, it was really like scraping the bottom of the barrel. And so I politely declined. I was like, Emma, good luck. I have no interest. I would never drink canned wine. Like I spent my night selling Crew Barolo. Um, 
I only deal in wine. I'm offended by the concept of canned wine. Yeah, get back and in when Angelo Gaia is putting his wine in. <laughs> exactly. And she's super stubborn, stalked my Instagram, canned a small batch of Pinot Noir from Josh Clapper, who's like a friend of mine, great winemaker on the Central Coast. Somehow she talked him into letting her can a small run of his and brought it back to me to taste and I really wanted to hate it I wanted to hate it really good and I had this realization that canned wine wasn't bad people were just putting bad wine in cans and Nomadica my company was born Um, and I'm now running it myself I'm the CEO and we've built a really great team and I'll steam ahead that's awesome so I want to I want to talk about Nomadica a little bit but I have a couple of questions just that prompted me one so what were the 1% drinking on Nantucket when you were uh, selling wine to them? What was like, what was the big deal there? Of course, first growth Bordeaux. Okay. Like, I mean, and also I was, I was really lucky to work at this restaurant called Straight Wharf that actually Julia Childs was the opening chef at. Okay. And the gentleman who owned it, um, he was an architect and just a wine lover who I don't think we ever did wine inventory there, which now looking back, I'm like, I, I should have appreciated that time more. Um, yeah. And so we had an amazing seller of Bordeaux dating back to the sixties, an incredible Burgundy list. Uh, it was mostly French. So, yeah. and then of course, all the, all the names that one might expect to see in that. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, I, so then just kind of on this big uh, topic, when, when you were, cause like, I think the thing that's fascinating to me about, about working as a sommelier or working as a, in wine sales, but um, especially in restaurants is how, as a som, if you work in different kinds of restaurants, you have to kind of become, you know, you have to kind of morph a little bit in what you, what you're, you know, what you're offering and what your because of what your clientele might want. And like, was it a big shift for you when you moved from, when you would go from, Nantucket to Palm Springs to Charlotte, I'm sorry, uh, Charleston to like, was that hard or did you, were you able to kind of put yourself like, okay, here I am in this place. And I know that people at Husk want this kind of wine and people in um, Nantucket, like I, I, that I've only ever kind of like worked in one place for years and like learned the list inside and out and the clientele. And so, so that thought of jumping around seems very challenging. It was, and and I'll be honest, it was partially so challenging because I had no clue what I was doing. Hmm. You know, I went Palm Springs was my first opportunity to create my own programs. So I ran a steakhouse, an Italian restaurant, a brunch joint. We did a bunch of Coachella catering, and I, of course, I was young, and I'm gonna be honest, like a little bit of an idiot. I was like, oh, I'm gonna have this amazing Burgundy list. I I quickly learned no one wants that there. Like it, <laughs> there's this joke in the desert and the desert's changed a lot. So this was, this was, you know, five or six years ago, yeah. but it's like, don't bother trying to sell anything. That's not Napa cab, Sonoma Chardonnay or Sonoma Pinot. Yeah. It's, it's what you want. And you need to have a, a $7 Pinot Grigio on your happy hour list. And it was, um, it was a really good exercise for me in learning how to take myself out of the situation and, and see what the guests wanted, but it was really hard. And then when I moved to Nashville, I again, hadn't really, I hadn't lost that. Like I remember looking back now, cause my list of GGs is very approachable, very affordable. Um, of course there's some heavy hitters on there, but 
what people want, right? But in Nashville, I was like, well, I'm not going to have a Chardonnay by the glass. I'm just going to do a Suave. And now I look, and I, I think I had like eight Shannons on my list. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. And, and the entire list was organized by soil type because that's how Sean Brock wanted it. I have, so, I have heard about this. And actually, I can't believe that, because uh, I think when you were on the on the Vine podcast with Adam, I don't know if you guys talked about your Husky experience, but I remember when we, he and I were in Charleston together and he, we, were, we were talking about like that whole idea of like this wine list organized by soil type and just being like, I just, I just feel like it would, it must've been so hard to communicate to guests because so few people, I mean, even people who are pretty serious wine drinkers, you know, yeah, maybe they know that like, you know, Chablis is mostly limestone or something, but like soil type is, I mean, beyond the conversation about exactly how it impacts wine and how much kind of uncertainty there is about that from a scientific standpoint, but just even from consumer, I mean, like varieties are hard enough, let alone like what soil type. Did you just, was it, was it like, was it just, you just kind of had to be like, this is what we're doing and I'm just going to embrace it or what? Well, I definitely went to Sean multiple times being like, please let me change this. It is so hard. People are already intimidated by the process of choosing a wine. I was begging him. I was like, please let me change this. He wouldn't let me. So um, went the completely opposite route and just focused a ton on staff education with some really amazing results. Like we got to a point there where I no longer needed to sell wine on the floor. That's cool. Um, yeah, I had, I think of that staff often, like really, really, really incredible serving staff that were just so interested. I would hold these like two hour Wednesday wine classes um, with my co-wine manager. And she was also like, we were, we came from very different schools of thought on wine. So it was really fun to collaborate on the list together. And we'd hold blind tastings or we'd focus on like volcanic wines one week or, you know, let's taste through full bodied whites. And it was just so incredible to see the power of education and action. I wonder too, you know, I, as someone who's done a lot of, or tried to do lots of staff education, one of the challenging things I found was, and maybe it's just a matter of having the right staff, but the issue is, you know, even if you're giving people free wine, help, even if you're giving them hourly pay, it's hard to get people to come in on their off time, on their days off and, and do it unless they're, you know, kind of independently motivated or maybe, you know, in the restaurant, there are ways potentially, you know, I've never, I've never done this, but I think it's plausible to say, Hey, look, you know, you don't attend enough of these trainings, you know, we're not, you know, you're going to be, you're going to get, you know, less shifts or less, you know, it's hard to do that. And obviously people have things going on in their lives, but, but how did you, I mean, was that just, do you think that came from within the staff or were you and, and your team able to do something to kind of motivate people to show up? Because that's always been my challenge is just getting the bulk of the staff, not the people who are really committed, they will show up and they appreciate it. And that's great too. But, but getting the, you know, sort of the middle group of service staff who are like, Hey, you know, this is a job and I'm, you know, we take it seriously, I guess, but I'm not going to, come in for two hours on my day off to, to learn about wine, even if it's, you know, it's not getting paid. Yeah. I think that's such a challenge. Um, I always break it down from a purely economic perspective, you know, to servers. Cause we, why, why do we go to work? We go to work to make money. And I think there's no better way to up your check average than selling bottles of wine. Like you're not gonna, I you know, I always use the analogy that, um, 
my old wine director at Moza, Sarah Clark, who I absolutely adore, used to always say, she'd say like, you're not going to sell a table another ribeye, but you could sell them another $200 bottle of wine. Um, that's especially in LA, people don't think twice about that, spending money on it. Um, and then I have learned, this has definitely been a learning experience for me as a leader, but relying a lot on, on positive reinforcement, mm -hmm. <laughs> like really, uh, cause also like I'm, I'm so East coast. And so, you know, being California is definitely a different vibe. And there's a little bit of a learning curve for me there. Cause I'm like, everyone has to know everything about the, buy the glass wines. And if you don't, I'm going to absolutely lose my shit. And like, what the hell? Um, but <laughs> I think like shouting out the people that are taking the time to learn the wines, um, like at, at Gigi's, I try to open up some baller wines. I try to get the winemakers to come in or the art distributors to come in because everyone gets bored of listening to me, but it's a, it's a constant work in progress. <laughs> I'll say that. What, what is not? Um, I want to I wanna come back to the restaurant question a little later, but I do want to talk a little bit about Nomadica and the canned wine question because I felt like as I've been thinking about it over the last year or so, maybe two years now, and, and this whole kind of, um, you know, the market and the industry has really greatly evolved. I wonder, you know, you kind of said when you first were um, approached by Emma, you know, your perception of canned wine was like, canned wine sucks, right? Like, why would I ever drink it? And it, it does seem to me like it's a case where that was a self-fulfilling prophecy for a while, where because the perception was canned wine was bad, the only wines that were getting put in cans were let's say bad to mediocre, right? There was some okay wine. And, and you know, if you thought of it only as a wine that you threw in your backpack and hiked with, and then like, you know, whatever, right? You're at, you're somewhere at the end of the hike. And you, I mean, you want the wine to be drinkable, but you don't, I mean, it's not the setting for, you know, you're not, you're not hauling stemware with you. You're not kind of doing the whole <laughs> thing. You just want something to drink and you like wine. And, and now it feels like whether it's Nomadica or some other brands out there that you mentioned and others, you know, the idea is more that the can is, it's not about only the use case of cans versus bottles, although that's a big part of it, but it's that, you know, here is a, here is a legitimate alternative to bottled wine. And, you know, I, I suspect that's probably how you see it, but I'm wondering, you know, like, is that a message that you feel like that consumers are receptive to, or do you still get a lot of pushback on the uh, canned wine is just for bad wine? I think consumers are really excited about canned wine. Um, and I think consumers are a lot more open to it than buyers are. I think my uphill battle and, and honestly, it was a tough couple years there because we started in 2018 and now it's a lot easier, but we took a hard line on being a premium canned wine and man, I felt like I was pushing a boulder up a hill for years. Yeah. Um, Thankfully, though, there are like one of my first, you know, sales I ever made uh, was to Ryan Bailey, who was the wine director at the Nomad Hotel in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I like knew Ryan from from wine stuff. I wouldn't I wouldn't have said we were close at that time, but I sat down with him. He tasted through all the wines with me and he was like, wow, these are really great. You should be very proud of yourself. And he gave me a placement at the Nomad Pool and in the mini bar. And it was, you know, people like that, that came into it with an open mind, wanted to support somebody from their world who was just trying really hard to do something well. Um, 
like I owe our entire business to people like that. So, but consumers are stoked, like, which is so interesting to me because consumers love, obviously our cans are very beautiful. We collaborate with artists on each label. So the art acts like a tasting note for what's inside. So people are drawn to them. They love to pick them up. I've seen people like rub them on their faces before, which is funny, but I think, you know, consumers are looking for a way to, I, I call it like conscious consumption, like at least in my house, if we open up a bottle of wine, there's no way that bottle's going back in the fridge unless we hate it. But well, then it's I probably can't. not going in the fridge, right? It's going in the sink. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> but like, if we even if I myself open up a bottle of wine, like I'm probably gonna drink it all. Like, let's just let's just be honest. Um, or drink most of it. But a can is a great way to have a glass and a half of wine not have the pressure of opening up a whole bottle or I think for some consumers like trying things without committing. Well, and that's a fascinating question to me because I, I think something like canned wine sits at this fascinating intersection between what we're seeing in the industry in beverage alcohol more broadly, where like one of the biggest trends are, is, is not just uh, hard seltzer, but, but variety packs, right? The idea that that someone can get a package that has a few different flavors and whether it's they themselves want to try them and decide what their favorite is, or they anticipate, you know, maybe now that people are getting vaccinated or even during the pandemic, people are obviously still seeing some people, you know, we can feel however we want about that, but it was definitely going on, you know, and wine has typically been, uh, you know, you get, I mean, I'm drinking a bottle, well, not the whole bottle, but I'm drinking from a bottle right now. And like, you get this amount and like you buy discrete units of it and, or you buy a case of it. And, and the can format, I think sometimes I wonder, you know, have you guys thought about doing, you know, sort of sampler packs for people? Because I think um, that, you know, there's that, you're at that intersection where people might not think that way with bottles of wine, but with cans, because that's just what, how so many people think about um, can beverage alcohol like wh is that on the radar you may even be doing it if I haven't done my homework properly I apologize so not in the wholesale channel we're not doing it yet but in um, online our direct to consumer you can buy what we call an adventure pack okay. so that's just a mixed four pack of our wines and that's our best selling you of course like yeah, people love it it's it's great for everyone. We're gonna have to get creative because we're we're doing a little rebrand and next month actually, and we're also adding a Chardonnay to our lineup, a still white. So now we're gonna have five core wines. So I'm like, all of us are kind of, we're like, how do we make, how do we package this together? But you, you, it's really simple. You do the you do the six pack and you do the like, um, you could do it two ways, right? You do the like, uh, we'll throw one one of the other one you get two of one of one of them and you'll just it'll be a surprise for you or you do the like um you kind of spin it as like wine tasting and you do one in a different it's one of the existing wines but in a like maybe not a blank can because that would be very anti your brand but like a different <laughs> different sort of generic artwork and then it's like can you tell which one this is um, it's like, like the mystery airheads yes of exactly Canada. that is what i was going to say <laughs> But I have no idea whether anyone up. I mean, I guess obviously you get it. We're I think of a similar age. So yeah, the the the, the white airhead, which was always just like you prayed that you got the good flavors, not the bad flavors. But it was a, kind of a fun roll of the dice. 
Oh, that's actually a good idea. We, I mean, we could just put in a mystery can. It's like maybe you get two sparkling rosés, maybe you get two rosés, maybe you get two chardonnays. But it was it was crazy. So we started releasing limited editions online every quarter, and our first limited edition was an organic and biodynamic chardonnay from Castoro Cellars, and it sold out like in a week. We were all shocked uh so i was like we need to add a, a chardonnay to the lineup and i kept getting all these emails and dms from people like when's the chardonnay coming back i need the chardonnay when's and i was like okay the people have spoken like yeah, yeah it's hard to fight that demand so this is actually a really interesting question that i i wasn't necessarily thinking of um of asking but i i thought you brought it up i'm curious so when you got because when you have this situation like you described where you have sort of a, a limited edition and it does really, really well. Is it an automatic in your eyes that that becomes a core part of the brand or, or do you have to think about maybe not the packaging considerations, although those are part of it, but like, you know, sometimes I wonder, is it like, was it a, was it, was it just because it was limited edition that it did really well? Obviously Chardonnay is popular. So it's not like, Oh wow. People like Chardonnay is like, you know, revelatory to you or I, but I just am curious because, you know, I can see how, like you have to protect that kind of core line to some extent, because otherwise, you know, if your core line is 11 wines, that becomes a little bit, you know, we know wineries that make not, they don't do canned wine, but just wineries that you, you're like, Oh, these are our 17 core wines. And you're like, this must suck from every other, you know, so much, so many parts of the business become harder when that's how you approach it. So, so how do you kind of decide, okay, we, we want to move this from limited one-off run or whatever to, to full part of the program? That's a great question. Um, so I was really lucky and this woman, Tara Hannaford had been consulting with us since January and I have been endlessly impressed by her. She was most recently the vice president of sales at Casa Amigos, has a ton of experience um, in a section of the industry where I honestly have none. And I felt like I was dating again, trying to get her to, to join the team, but she joined me as our COO. And Tara is obsessed with Nielsen data, obviously. Um, and thinks about things in a completely different way than I do. You know, like, I'm, you know, we're doing like a, a limited edition Albarino this summer for Whole Foods Northeast and things like that. Like, I'm like, let's get zany. Let's, you know, be crazy and, and do all these things. And Tara's like, no, we also have to build a profitable, successful business that people can trust. Yeah. And so <laughs> I'm very grateful for her brain. So we had already been talking about adding a Chardonnay because Chardonnay is the best selling wine in America, period, can or bottle. And so... That had been on the been on the docket for a while, but the the quick the quickness with which that limited edition sold out was really shocking, and kind of cemented it in our mind. And since you mentioned sort of I don't know, not sorry Nielsen data, but just data in general, you know, are you do you have a sense for like obviously you have uh sort of the the nomadic consumer can be a lot of different kinds of people, but like if you were to try and kind of categorize at least a couple of them like. Who, what is your core audience or your core audiences? So I'm really lucky to find like-minded investors who are way smarter than I am. And a lot of our investors have, <laughs> seriously, I am, and who are incredibly patient and just generally wine lovers and like got the vision. Um, and a lot of our investors have a lot of experience with data science. Okay. 
So I have been meticulously gathering data, a lot of surveys, uh, you know, we offer promo codes if you take a survey, et cetera. And I always said this anecdotally, but the proof has really been in the pudding in terms of the data the last six months. The quality of our wine is the strength of our brand. I think that a lot of other canned wine brands who you know are great, I don't look at them as my competition. I look at bottled wine as my competition. That's who I'm competing against. But I think of those other canned brands are trying to convert people from seltzers or from beer or from vodka sodas. And we're not trying to do that. We're, we're going to wine drinkers and the data proves that our customers, they're wine drinkers. Wine is their beverage of choice. Um, they're between the ages of 25 and 40. Although we have this like, then this segment of people in their 60s that love us, which I think is really cool because that broke my brain a little bit. I was like, these people will be so opposed to it because it's not traditional. But in terms of the controlled consumption and quality, they love it. Um, definitely higher income earning. We've noticed that and just skews slightly female, but not as much as one might think. And, mm -hmm. and one last kind of question about Nomadica, then I want to talk a little more broadly about sustainability. Um, I'm curious to, you know, uh, some, you know, this is, a hard, this is kind of hard. I, let me try and frame this the right way. Right now, you guys are working with a, a lot of different winemakers and wineries as to source. Down the road at some point, do you envision having your own actual production in terms of from potentially vineyard to can, or, or is it like, we like that what we get to do is work with a lot of different winemakers. So I always liken us to somewhat of a, a negotiant. So just as a sommelier in a restaurant or as a wine director, I curate a list of my favorite wines, you know, best varietal example, best for the price, et cetera, et cetera, universally appealing. That's what we're doing with Nomadica. And I don't think we'll ever own our own vineyards. We probably will make some of our own wine. Um, I have a feeling that's going to happen towards the end of the year. Hint, hint, hint. We're going to do some cool things. But I just, I love the idea of not being tied to a specific region, a specific, you know, a specific winemaker, especially in 2020 with all the fires. It made me so grateful for that piece of our business. I was like, wow, I'm not worried about our production. I have the ability to source from anywhere. And eventually I would like to start bringing some wine over from Europe. Okay. And then okay. potentially um, there's a, there's a fun Mexican wine collaboration with one of my, one of my f close friends and another sommelier uh, turned winemaker that is in the partnership works of discussion right now. So we're just, we love the flexibility and staying really open. And it makes sense because, yeah, you, as you said, not only do you not know growing conditions in a given place, but also what is, how the market will evolve and, and being flexible in that regard, you know, maybe there is suddenly a bunch of demand for Albarino. And if you don't have a vineyard with a lot of Albarino, then you're kind of, you know, then you're taking on additional, not additional risk, but you're just tying yourself down in a different way. Okay, exactly. I want to talk a little bit about, about sustainability broadly. And, and I want to start by just, by just prefacing this with something, which is, um, it's been something that um, I've been talking about a lot, or, or we've been talking about a lot on the Vinefair podcast. Um, those of you who might not already listen, I encourage you to give it a listen. Um, and I think that you know one thing that's been certainly evident over the last you know year plus of the COVID nineteen pandemic is that the definition of sustainability 
has necessarily become broader and broader and it encompasses i think a lot of things that that it was always you know kind of tied into i.e you know sustainable forms of agriculture or viticulture uh impact on climate and the carbon footprint but also this other piece of it that i think we've become much more aware of i know i have and, and i think a lot of people have over the last few years really and that's the sort of social sustainability of any business and, and wine because that's what we're talking about and that's what you're doing. And to me, one of the really interesting pieces of this is really understanding how um, that more full definition of sustainability becomes a lot more robust than, than merely looking at organic agriculture, which is important for sure. I don't mean to diminish that. And I'm curious, you know, Kristen, for you, because this is something we talked about beforehand, like when you look at this idea of sustainability, for you and for Nomadica, what, what does that mean? So this is something we, we think a lot about. And, you know, my, my little background, I'm very lucky. I grew up in Western Massachusetts, this incredibly liberal um, intellectual community. And when I was in college, I did my abroad program in India and I lived in an eco village. And it was a really interesting experience because it was an eco-village that was started by mostly French and German people and was in Tamil Nadu, which is one of the um, poorest states in India. And, you know, they were doing all of these things like sustainable farming. They were doing a lot of permaculture. They were doing a lot of earth building. But I thought it was so fucked up how little they interacted with the villages around them and how they treated Tamil villagers like servants and didn't give them access to all of these wonderful things that were happening in that community. And having an undergraduate degree in women, um, race, ethnicity, and sexuality studies, we of course focused on intersectionality constantly. And so, you know, shoot forward like a decade plus later, oh, now owning my own business, it was, a, it was time for me to really put my money where my mouth was, right? Which is, yes, we, we're in a capitalist society, but how, as a leader, how do I make decisions that are not just focused on choosing great wine, which of course we do, like at minimum, everything is sustainably farmed, no copper usage in the vineyard, no chemical manipulation in the cellar, the cans themselves are infinitely more recyclable, infinitely more sustainable than bottles, but also when it comes to hiring, you know, all my Nomadica staff, we pay for everybody's health insurance. Um, we, we pay very well to be completely honest. I wanted everyone, especially our salespeople to feel comfortable and secure in their, their jobs and their lives. Uh, we offer unlimited vacation, you know, a, a lot of things, a lot of flexibility. And that was, it's, it's been challenging and hard to put these things into effect, but I think so worthwhile and more companies need to do them. And then of course, even even further than that, hiring people of color, uplifting, you know, other women, LGBTQ plus, uh, like all of our artists for our new can labels are LGBTQ plus, uh, BIPOC or women, like just doing every single little thing that we can to be sustainable in a holistic way. And of course, there's a long way to go. Um, I think, you know, the dirty secret that 
I think some people are starting to talk about that we all need to do a better job of talking about is talking about the, the labor situations in vineyards. Um, that's why I'm such a huge fan of Stoltman sellers. We're actually doing a collaboration with them later this year that we're going to release. I, I think it's incredible how they take care of their vineyard workers, pay them incredible wages, allow them ownership in the wine. Like I just, I idolize them. I hope to get there someday, but even then talking about the packaging universe, like I didn't realize how difficult it is to make boxes that are actually recyclable. Like we went in wanting, you know, all these colors and all these bright things, but at, at the same time, sustainability is a core tenant of our brand. And our packaging guy was like, cool, I can do that all. It won't be recyclable though. And so we're like, okay, well, you know, that we needed to be recyclable. So we're going to scale, scale it back, go with two colors. Obviously we don't use any plastic. We would save a lot of money if we just use trays and wrap them in plastic. But sometimes I think it comes down to just not thinking of the bottom line and how to make a quick buck all the time and taking the, the long road. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering too, you know, like, I think a thing that's inspiring about that to me is that, um, it's tempting, well, two things. One, I think it's tempting for anyone or any business, especially a new one, to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll get to our goals eventually. And I think when you take that approach, like, eventually never comes, right? Like, it, it becomes, you take shortcuts or you say, well, okay, we, it's more important, I mean, it's more important for us to have beautiful boxes than it is for us to be recyclable. And then once you start that, then you never stop that, right? Like, it, like those things are very hard to, to, to come back from in a way. And, and additionally to that, like, I think it's, I'd be curious to hear, you know, you don't have to give too much away, but like attracting investors who will look at a situation like this and not say, okay, great, but we're spending X on packaging and we could be spending, you know, 30% less if we were doing this. Like, is it just that you guys have been very upfront to investors about like, these are things, these are, this is the brand, this is the idea, these are our tenants. Like, how do you find investors who don't, who haven't then said like, okay, great, but like, you know, let's actually cut costs. It was really hard. Um, our first round took me years to raise. And, you know, I look back on that time because I was also working the floor every night at Moza. And I probably, you know, people always talk about how hard it is to start a business. And, you, and only now looking back, I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, like, how did I do that? Like, how did I work that many hours in a day and handle that much stress? But there was, there were some people early on that offered us money and it didn't feel right, you know, and, and we said no. And we waited and eventually we found some really great partners. And I am so grateful to have investors like the ones we have. They believe in our ethos. They, they care about sustainability. They care about quality and they're patient, understanding, highly intelligent people. So I'm very lucky. That's wonderful. And I'm wondering too, you know, how do you, how do you communicate that, um, that sort of perspective and that sort of, um, you know, those tenets of ethos to, to partners in the, in the wine space, right? Because I think, is it more that, you know, hey, look, I know this winemaker or this grower they already do the, they do things the way we want them done? Or is it more like, 
we come to you and say, hey, like, this is important to us, you know, uh, maybe, like, how does that partnership work with the winery side? Well, I think, and I'm, you know this, like, when you've worked in wine for as long as we have, you kind of know what people are doing, right? And you, you know. Good and bad, for sure. Exactly. And you, you know, you can ask people, there's always somebody that knows somebody else. And it's just, it's such a small world. And I, you know, love, hate that, but it's been a lot of that. Yeah. Makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, I want to shift a little bit away from this for a moment. Cause I just have a few other things that I would love to get your, your input on. So one of the, one of the things I was thinking about when preparing for this um, salon was, you know, um, the can is a really fascinating format for a lot of reasons. And, and one of them is, of course, the portability. And as you mentioned, the sort of smaller serving size, all that. But another way it's interesting is that, to my, the best of my understanding, and you might know better than I do, much more so than, than even a, well, certainly than a traditional bottle with a cork in it, but even maybe then with a screw cap, you know, you're kind of creating a time capsule of a wine in a way that where, because it's airtight, it's not really interacting with oxygen in the way that a, a traditional, you know, cork closure would. That one, I think, tends to recommend certain kinds of wine for cans and others, but also like, do you feel like, um, like, does it, what does that mean as a, when you're opening the cans? Because I think one thing that we've, I've, I've heard from people and experienced myself is like, it's almost not only is it, um, you know, it's obviously different, literally it's easier to open a can because it's got a full tab or whatever, but, but like consuming it has a certain different set of like expectations. Like, like for people who might be can phobic, like how does that, how do they get the wine to the place they want to drink it at? So that is something we think about constantly. Like if you look at our Instagram and our website, every single like piece of media is a can being poured into a glass. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I will die on the hill that obviously wine tastes better out of a glass. Uh, we, we all know it, right? Like I'm not going to ever argue that fact, but there have been some challenges with wine. Like I really like to source aromatic varietals, especially for our sparkling. Like our sparkling white right now is 50% Malvasia, 50% Chardonnay. The Malvasia really comes from a nice way. So when you open up that can, like you can actually smell it. Um, we had a couple hard lessons that we learned in our first year, of course. Uh, I'm not a sulfur purist by any means. I, you know, I'm just, I'm not, but we don't use any sulfur in our wines because I'm sure you, many of us have had the experience of opening up a canned wine. And if it was sulfured, like you would a bottle, it's the first thing you smell and it does not leave for a long time. It also uh, makes the wine more reductive. So, oh my, we had a big, big mistake happen with a Chenin Blanc in our first uh, year of launching <laughs> that we had to destroy all the product. Oh, no. I was like, hmm productive grape varietal that we sulfured and then <laughs> it just was undrinkable but so yeah and then of course you know wine doesn't I think it ages like very 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 slowly but barely it basically doesn't age so everything that we can it's drinking exactly how we want it to drink at the moment that we can it so there are certain wine varietals that I will never put in a can like like Nebbiolo probably like i I yeah. just, and also 
super tannic reds, not, not great out of a can. Yeah. Like things that are high acid, you know, fun, bright, um, fresh fruit, no tannin, those things crush out of a can. Okay. I have to ask a like moderately, that's not, hopefully not a painful question, but just a question that I, that's on my mind. So obviously also we're dealing with, especially if you're, you know, potentially with no sulfur and, and just in the wine zeitgeist these days, this question around sort of natural wine and, and, and especially in this context where sort of like fault meets personal preference. And I feel like, especially because even if, as you said, the, all of the public facing imagery is poured into a bottle you, or into a glass, I'm sorry, you know, some percentage of your consumers are drinking straight from the can. I think, as you said, you know, you're definitely, um, in those settings, you're not getting any of the sort of opening that you expect with a wine in the glass. Like, how do you approach things that could be faults depending on your own personal preference? Like, is that something you're concerned with? How does that kind of all play out for Nomadica? So, something we think a lot about. Um, our wines are classic in style. Um, my background as a sommelier is very classic, which I'm very lucky to have that experience and to have tasted a lot of the, the wines that I had access to. I, of course, love natural wines um, as well, but I specifically source wines that I think are kind of ubiquitously crowd-pleasing. Mm -hmm. And so my nerdy sommelier friends will drink a can when they're at the beach, but then also you know, somebody's aunt who has wine three times a year and says everything's too sweet will also enjoy them. And we're kind of made to take over programs in that way. Like we've had a really great success in the on-premise because we can go into, you know, what I like to call like a fake dive bar, like not a great wine program, but you can get an amazing $17 Negroni. Mm -hmm. uh, we can take over and just be there, all of their wines that they're offering because they're generally crowd-pleasing. They don't sell a ton of wine. They don't have any waste et cetera, et cetera. Um, I like to say we have a foot in the natural wine space without standing completely in it. And I, you know, I'm always really careful to never call us natural wine because I don't think we are. We're not, you know, spontaneously fermented. Uh, we, you inoculate at some, at times, some of our wines. Uh, and I'm, I, I, I tread very lightly with the natural wine community. Um, <laughs> fear and appreciation yeah. you know from they, they, they can get angry for sure they can, they can get angry i also you know i'm honestly i'm not making wine for them um i'm making wine to be in the mini bar at the w hotel and so when you're traveling you can drink something delicious i'm making wine so that somebody who's super intimidated by wine and maybe drinking something that's not super high quality can spend their money on something great that supports you know, not only a company that's great, but down to the, the farmers and the winemakers growing our grapes who are doing the right things. So that's, that's kind of where our head's at on that. Very cool. Okay, yeah. I want to step away from Nomadica a little bit and just talk some general wine stuff with you because um, yeah. it's fun. So um, what, outside of kind of what you're doing for Nomadica and maybe even for Gigi's like kind of non-professional wine stuff, like what are you excited about just drinking these days? God, so I've actually, it's been crazy. My fiance and I have really cut down our drinking um, in the last couple months because we were like, I think we went through like half my wine collection in quarantine last year. <laughs> was, there wasn't I, a lot else to do. 
God, rough. So I'm really excited about, um, of, of course, I am like a classic burgundy lover. Uh, I can't get away from that. But I'm really excited about Spain, Portugal, and Greece right now. Um, of course, being at Moza, I got to really deep dive into the world of Italian wines. I love wine from Campania in Sicily. Like, Fiano is one of my favorite grapes on the planet. I also, it's so cheap for the quality that you get. And the, are you going to pull out a bottle of like Chiro oh, Picariello? I was going to say it. I got to, now I got to find it. I just stocked the shelves. So, like, where did I put the Fiano? Is a good question. That's, that's our names. <laughs> And then I'm really stoked on, you know, what people are calling the new California wine scene. Um, I think there's, and especially like coming from the East coast, you know, I never drank a lot of California wine. I think I had a pretty negative perception of it for a really long time and god now i love it i'm like constantly so excited by the incredible producers that are out there right now like one of my the we're releasing a piquette as our limited edition for the summer months and i was up in sonoma blending it with uh mike lucia from ooh sorry not to interrupt but yeah a couple of my favorites teradora de paulo and uh Redici. I'm a big fan of old Fiano, so some 2015s here. It's incredible how it tastes when it's aged. Yeah. Like the almonds, the white flowers, like I cannot get enough. And it's yeah. like a like a $20 bottle that you just sit on. It's like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, and you can find, like, if you, especially, like, if you kind of put the word out there, like, also, like, distributors always have, like, seven bottles of some back vintage because they didn't sell it all, and, like, I'm like, that's where I'm like with my reps always always like, what do you have weird old Italian white wines like around? Because age like Italian whites, and, and frankly, a lot of European whites, but like, yeah, Italian, you know, Spanish, Greek, et cetera. Like those wines are not meant, I mean, there are some that are meant to be drunk young, but a lot of them are not, we're not intentional. Like the concept of those wines is not drink it, the current vintage, or like drink 2020 or whatever. Like it's drink six, seven years later. Um, yeah, so anyhow, sorry, I, I yeah. just. Uh, you're yeah. making me think. Well, we opened up this bottle. It was a 2007 La Colombera Timoroso recently, and it was like stunning. And people always say Italy doesn't produce great white wine, and I'm like, so you people, don't know. Because the problem is, if you drink those wines with a year of age, they, they're not that great. Like, they're kind of, they don't have a lot going on necessarily. They're like, they're like, okay, fine, like, eh, whatever, it's not anything special. It's like, but if you let them come into their own, like, it, it's like, it would be like if people's conception of, of Barolo was like, ah, it sucks when it when it's released, so, or it doesn't suck, but like, I don't get it when it's released, so therefore, Italy doesn't make good red wine. They're like, this is dumb. Like, they just don't make red wine or white wine on the, like, on the time scale that American consumers think on, right? Like, I can't tell you, I'm sure you drove this, this drove you crazy probably too, it drove me crazy all the time. Convincing people that it was okay to drink white wine that wasn't like the previous year's vintage. Like it's okay. I mean, unless it was, you know, obviously it was like white burgundy or something that people had in their heads. Like, okay, this is a fine white wine region, but it's like, no, 
these wines are not, you know, it's not the, it's not, it's not just like porch pounder wine. Like there's that stuff too, fine. But like, you know, yeah, sorry. You just, or rosé. Yeah, that too. I mean, like even my, actually my staff education class at Gigi's last week was like, why old rosé is cool. Everybody's like, people are complaining, and I was like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to. All, I mean, it doesn't have to be like you know, Lopez y Heredia aged rose, that's its own beast, but like, exactly. in general, like, yeah, like a year or two of age for a good rose is right. Like, you don't want all total primary fruit. I mean, I don't, I don't know. And if you want just like pink water, then that there's a whole set of roses for that, too, exactly. This was in regards to Chateau Simone. So I was like, guys, this is a, this is a serious yeah. wine. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to carry the 2020 for a while. Yeah, um, exactly. Oh, so and then something else I'm super interested in uh, are non-alcoholic beverages lately. Okay. Yeah. Like, like what? Like Gia. Um, I really like that. She's, she's based in LA. She's great. It's like, have you had it? It's an I've aperitif. Seen it, I've, seen it, I've seen some uh, some industry or you know kind of professional folks talk about it, but I haven't tried it. Yeah, it's really cool. It's delicious. Um, and then of course we've been experimenting a lot with seed lip cocktails at home, and then the Lagunitas sparkling hop water. I can't get enough of that. Yeah, seed lip. <laughs> that seed lip I played around a little bit with professionally, uh, just kind of trying to do, um, you know. NA cocktails or whatever mocktails everyone phrases. Um, I I don't know. It's it's funny. Like I think there's a there are real merits to this kind of expanding uh, possibility space for like interesting beverages for adults that are not alcoholic. I do think that like one thing that I always kind of come up against sometimes is like just for me personally, sometimes I feel like the it's hard to get a, enough flavor in for me to feel like it's like it does in a pinch but I am also a little bit sometimes like if I'm going to be paying $11 for a drink that's non-alcoholic I'm probably just going to want to pay 13 or 14 for something that does have alcohol in it because it will probably have a little more flavor I mean people are figuring this stuff out it's remarkable the quality I mean god I, one of my first like restaurant jobs I remember we I remember just like we had a this was this you know, a long time ago, we had an NA wine on the menu for a while. And it was just, I mean, I was, you know, 22. I didn't know any better, but it was, I mean, I tried it because I was curious and it was just horrible. I mean, it was, you know, it just tasted like, you know, it's just, it, 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 and wine is the hard, I think the hardest category to hit with NA stuff. Like, you know, I've tasted some of that. Um, it's really, really hard to get what people are expecting out of wine in an NA wine. But like, even in other categories, beer, et cetera, like the, the, the quality has come a long, long way, especially recently. Um, and for all, I get why for a lot of people, it's it's an appealing alternative. I don't know. I just, I may be a little stubborn on this one. No, I, I agree with you. I think for me, it's like the texture is missing often, you know, like the weight on your palate. Yeah, well, um, alcohol has texture. Like you can't, without, without doing... Like, because the thing with the NA wines that I've had a lot of is a lot of them trying to replace the texture with weight from sugar, but it's like, I don't want, I don't want sweet. Like, that's not what I'm looking for here. And if you kind of go like, no, no sweetness and also don't have 
the body from alcohol is like yeah it's like very watery which is you know, okay but like not really that exciting no exactly it's something that i'm always i'm always on the hunt for something great that's kind of keep an open mind i'm always hoping to be like floored by something i don't i, I don't doubt that someone will that, that like there's such a market a growing market for these things that, that people will continue to kind of push to figure it out um mm -hmm. but i also think that like sometimes you know it's like this is my thing right sometimes i think um there's a tendency on the media side especially like because i'm beating both like just like you're one foot in the natural wine world i'm like one foot in the media world one foot in the trade world and um on the media side especially i think there's this real tendency to kind of look at relatively small trends and in, in and, and conflate them as some big industry shaking event. And I think that's what, a little bit what's happened with this sort of NA thing where it's like, still the vast majority of people who drink alcoholic beverages want alcohol in them. Like that's what they are <laughs> going for. And like in its own weird way, like the whole white cloth surge thing was like this great illustration. It's like, no, people want the effect of alcohol. They don't just want the flavor. They want to get, you know, a little, you know, they, whatever their desired level of alcohol intake, they want to get there. And so there is this tendency sometimes to kind of over obsess on this small fraction of the audience that does, to some extent, want NA or low alcohol stuff. And it kind of ignores the mass of consumers who are like, no, I want to drink three beers and feel it, or I want to drink two glasses of wine and feel it. Like that is part of the appeal of the product. And sometimes the industry has this weird way of talking itself around alcohol because here in this country we have such a weird relationship to alcohol and substances broadly and like it's weird to talk about one of the desired effects being like getting you know may not blackout drunk but getting like somewhere on the scale of like intoxication and that's a desired outcome for the consumer it's not a side effect or an accident it's like it's what people want maybe in addition to the flavor flavor in addition to the socializing and so i think like we have to remember that like that's a piece of it too for people totally totally and i think you know i myself am guilty of losing sight of that sometimes like somebody recently pointed out to me because i was like oh, i wish i started a non-alcoholic brand like you know mostly me griping about the regulatory ttb mm. fun um that animal for sure yeah don't even get me started on that but then they were like why the people will drink wine every single day of the week. Like it is, there's no getting away from that. That will not change. And I was like, good point. Yeah. Yeah. And you just kind of create for yourself this kind of like, you know, you, you, in a way, you know, you limit your audience and you're, I mean, you were already pushing an uphill boulder with hand wine. Like, would you like to be pushing two? Cause, cause convincing <laughs> people that like low alcohol or no alcohol wine is good. I mean, I think that's a harder sell to people than uh, than cans. Like cans, people have a lot of experience with. But again, I mean, I've tried lots of the low alcohol and no alcohol stuff. And like, you know, some of it's all right. But like, to me, it's kind of like, sometimes it's a little bit, it feels like a solution without a problem, really. Like, yeah. or at least without enough of a problem. Like, yes, are there, is there a segment of the, of the consumer base that might opt for this sometimes? Sure. But I think it's small and I think it's until someone finds a way to make one, what, if they're ever able to, to make these products that are really, you know, 90% of the way there instead of like 
60% of the way there, 70% of the way there. And I think that's very going to be very difficult. And that those that percentage is meaningful, right? You know, it's, it's not 60% of the way there for me just isn't good enough. It might as well be 0% of the way there. I might as well drink water. Like that's kind of how I feel about them. No, I, you're not going to waste your beverage on something yeah. mediocre. That's how I feel too, yeah. Um, okay, so last thing I want to bring up, um, and then obviously, of course, folks, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to share them. The last thing I want to ask you about is, um, you know, you've talked about being interested in looking potentially overseas for um, sources for Nomadica. Um, if you had, again, set, maybe setting aside the, you know, Nielsen data and setting aside everyone else, like in your in your dream world in a year, like are there like three varieties, regions, whatever, like that you could say like, you know, wave a magic wand and this is part of the, the Nomadica family. Like, what would you personally just want to see? A really fresh, probably concrete aged Sangiovese from Chianti. Okay. Like um, maybe one from Rada. Like, you know, my dream would be to collaborate with Angela from Eastine or something like that on a wine. Because I, I love, I feel like her wines are, are serious, don't need a ton of time to age. They're very vibrant, very fresh. Um, I definitely like I always get talked off the ledge on this one because I get you know doggedly obsessed with things, but I I really want to do a vermouth soda. Oh, interesting! Really great vermouth soda, yes. Um, but then you know everyone's like, no one drinks vermouth, no one would want that, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if you you saw something from us next year, like that, and then. God, I don't even know. I, I, we're definitely going to do a skin contact wine next year. Oh, wow. So yeah, that's in the works right now. Very cool. Awesome. But a very approachable, clean skin contact. Yeah. Cause awesome. we, yeah, we keep the faults out of our wines. <laughs> Always good. Uh, well, <laughs> Kristen, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun talking to you. Um, getting a chance to learn a little more about your background, about Nomadica, kind of the vision for it. And, and and how you're making that real and, and getting to talk a lot about, you know, really meaningful elements of sustainability that go beyond uh, nearly, not that they're not hugely important, but nearly kind of uh, how to uh, how to be um, green and, and, you know, the sort of the viticulture side. So again, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for being here. Really appreciate it. Um, we'll be back in a couple of uh, weeks with Master Sommelier Jill Zamorski, host of a great uh, podcast, Reading and Drinking. She and I will talk about what makes good wine book, what makes bad wine book, why there are a lot more of the latter than the former, and uh, lots more, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Zach. Also, and next time I'm in uh, Seattle, I'm gonna invite myself over <laughs> to drink some, some of your great- to drink, so yeah, yeah right? come on over. Please do. <laughs>